When I'm having a hard time, and I do, sustaining and, and, uh, and leading a vital Catholic institution in the times in which we live, it's like building a house in a gale wind. When you think everything's over, it's all over, that's when God is gonna say, nope, I actually have a whole plan for the renewal of everything. People misunderstand the nature of the church, the struggle that we're meant to have within the church, the struggle that the church has with the world, and the way that informs our call to holiness and sanctity today. They'll say, hey, look, you're just philanthropists. You're people who do good things. And of course, they're fundamentally misunderstanding us. We're not philanthropists. We believe that we're serving God. A big thank you to today's episode sponsor, Christ Medicus Foundation Curo. CMF Curo is an affordable Catholic health and wellness alternative offering a health sharing option, wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic health community rooted in Christ's love. Hello and welcome to the Bible Timeline Show. I'm Jeff Cavins and so glad that you are joining us. You know, when we, we come to this period, we have to really understand what's going on in the bigger picture. The, the last big movement was the return from Babylonian exile. You might remember when you look at all of the enemies of Israel that we have the Egyptians early on and then, and then we have the Assyrians, they took out the north, and then the Babylonians, they took out the south, and then, and then the Persians. And the Persians were the world power and they're the ones under King Cyrus that allowed Israel to return. Judah specifically, to the south to rebuild the temple, start studying scripture again with Ezra, and rebuilding the walls with Nehemiah. So you have Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, and they are back in the land, and everything looks like it's going really pretty good, but something's happening behind the scenes, and that is that the Greek influence in the world is rising. You know, when, when Alexander the Great, during this period, came into Jerusalem, well, the goal was to Hellenize the Jews, that is to get them to stop worshiping Yahweh and to begin to, uh, you know, adhere to the, to the Greek gods, later the Roman gods. Well, they didn't. They didn't at all. And so when Alexander came in, he was actually impressed. He was impressed, and he allowed them to carry on with this, this, this doctrine of, uh, of uh, tolerance, I guess you could say. We're going to let the Jews continue, continue on. And that's the way the Ptolemies, who came in after Alexander's death, they allowed that, that doctrine of tolerance, that attitude of tolerance, to prevail as well. But when the Seleucids came in under Antiochus Epiphanes, everything changed. And this is all chronicled in the uh, in 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees. And so what happened at that point was Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to force change. He wanted to force change. And so he sent his generals down into the land and there was a community of Jews just northwest of Jerusalem. There was this town of Modin and that's what he targeted. He went after the people who really were trying to live their faith the most, and he tried to force them to be converted. He took over the temple in Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, some say even sacrificing pigs in the 
temple. The Jews revolted against the Greeks under the Seleucids, the Seleucid control, and it is an amazing story. What looked like would be impossible, they pulled it off. Well, the long and short of it is, is that this Maccabeus family revolted, Judas Maccabeus. We have this, this story after story of great heroes of the faith who would not give in to the Greeks. They would not do what God said not to do. Monsignor Shea, it's good to have you. It's good to be with you, Jeff. I, I, so many, well, go ahead. No, I could hear you. I could listen to you all day oh. talk about the scriptures. I was so thrilled by the introduction you just gave. Oh, thank you. To the Maccabees. It's beautiful. I, I appreciate that. Before we get into the Maccabean Revolt, a little bit about yourself. Give me a little background. Sure. I, I grew up on a farm two miles north of a little town called Hazleton, North Dakota. So that's about 38 miles from the main campus of the University of Mary. So I grew up within throwing distance of the university that I'm now working at uh, and serving. Uh, we had small grains and dairy cows and we grew up working hard. Uh, my dad came from an Irish Catholic family um, and my mom is a convert to Catholicism. She grew up Lutheran and uh, they taught us to love God and to love the church. Mm. Um, I went to Jamestown College for a couple of years, right out of high school, and then uh, felt called to the seminary. So I went to the Catholic University of America and then over to Rome, where I was at the North American College. And uh, then I came home, I was a high school chaplain um, and a small town pastor uh, for seven years before I was named president of the University of Mary. I was named president at the age of 33. That's young. At 34. I was the youngest college president in America for 10 years. That is amazing. Well, thanks for coming on the show, and we're talking about the Maccabean Revolt. Right. This is, a, this is a, a time in Israel's history that a lot of people don't really know much about. In, they know the stories of Noah and Abraham and so forth, but this story fits right in between the old and the new, and it completes that, that, that narrative. What do you, when you think about the Maccabean Revolt, what comes to mind? Well, um, you know, when, when you read First and Second Maccabees, it's impossible not to be struck by the epic courage of the sons of Mattathias, right? It, it's extraordinary the way in which their zeal for the Lord of hosts, their uh, respect for the temple and the statutes of God, their love for the law uh, and for the practices of their people, how it it animated their every conviction, and they were um, strong in their beliefs, strong in their convictions, such that they couldn't be cowed, they couldn't be threatened in an effective way, and they fought back. Mm -hmm. um, I think, it, it, uh, you know, I need to turn to you as a Bible scholar to correct me, but I, you know, the the Book of Hebrews. Uh, speaks about these heroic struggles of all of the great heroes of the Old Covenant uh, and makes reference, I think, uh, to the, uh, the martyrs of Maccabees and to those great warriors and says these, these words, when I say them, shivers go down my spine, the world was not worthy of them. Mm. The world was not worthy of them, Hebrews says, uh, looking back at the great heroes of the Old Covenant. The world was not worthy of them. 
uh, because of their sufferings, because of their courage. Mm -hmm. And so when I think of them, you know, in, in reading First Maccabees and reading Second Maccabees, of course, they, they have a little bit of a different style mm -hmm. from each other. Second Maccabees is maybe a little more editorial, but they're delightful to read. And you can, uh, you can almost hear the clamor of battle uh, and the spittle and the blood splashing and the, the sweep of swords. It's like... Um, it's like reading Tolkien almost. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it has that, that epic quality uh, to it. It's a worthy way for the Old Testament to uh, come to a close. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when you, when you read about the, the Maccabean revolt, uh, it wasn't always that way with them. They went through a very difficult yeah. exile. Yeah. And they were in exile in Babylon for 70 years, and then they, they came back and they really got their act together. You know, they, right. they rebuilt the temple, and then they, uh, Ezra started teaching the law, and then the walls were built around Jerusalem. They really were a community. And I, I liken that so often to our day, you know, with the church where you, the, the temple being built would really stand for the place of sacrifice. Uh, the sacraments for us, you yeah. know, in the Eucharist and the Word of God uh, says enough for, about itself there, the Word of God. And then this idea of the walls around the city is we're a people now, the, you know, the communion, the communion of saints. And when they came back, they really became a new people. And that formation, you know, really fortified them and this one family rose up and they began to resist that, that change. And, you know, I think about today and what's going on in the world today and uh, where we're at as a people, things have changed. Mm -hmm. And even from when you were a kid sure. and when I was a kid, how are you seeing the world change? Well, you know, I think we're in a time of purification. Uh, mm -hmm. Your references to the Babylonian exile and the people coming back as a people, uh, you do see that um, the heroism of Judas Maccabeus and his brothers was the fruit of the purification of God. Uh, he was rooting out infidelity, rooting out idolatry among his people, mm -hmm. and the Babylonian exile was a, uh, uh, a bitter chapter in that long purification. And I think Second Maccabees even talks about this. Uh, don't be surprised that uh, the ravages of Antiochus Epiphanes descended upon the people because there was infidelity, and that's actually mercy in a certain way. Yes. I think that we're, we're finding ourselves in a time of purification that's like that as well. Um, you know, Jeff, you would have a, a much better grasp on a number of the dynamics there. But, you know, when I look back up, upon the time of the Maccabees, um, you know, you've got the Ptolemies and the, the Seleucids, and Israel is in this kind of liminal space mm. between these competing empires, and is, um, you, you, see that, um, you see that some of the Jews go over to Hellenizing practices, you know, and forsake in many ways uh, the law and the prophets. And, uh, and so you've got a kind of civil war even among the Jewish people. They are a community, as you said, but you can perceive that, that there are tensions among them, almost between those who are living in Jerusalem and those who are in the countryside. And, um, 
And there's a way in which Antiochus Epiphany, as wicked as he was, uh, was could have been understanding himself as intervening in a, in a kind of civil war between these Jewish factions. And I think that, um, that there is a, a clear analog. Well, Josephus later talks, doesn't he, about, um, about the divisions among the Jews and the destruction of the temple and all of those things. The, these divisions, this lack of unity, uh, this lack of communion is something which we see in the church. Mm. In, in, in the same way that someone like Antiochus Epiphanes is able to move in and take advantage of and manipulate those, um, those fissures, so too we see that in the church as well. Um, the, the, and so we don't struggle, of course, simply against worldly power. Yeah. St. Paul reminds us of that. We're talking about principalities and powers in the spiritual right. realm. So the enemy is always looking to manipulate, always looking, always strategizing. How can he cast apart, rip apart, divide, all of these mm -hmm. things? So within the church, um, you have divisions, infidelities, and hypocrisy. Um, and that has weakened us in significant ways. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so you can see that the enemy using the tools or the, uh, um, the, the foil of um, government regulation or uh, cultural um, forces or cancellation and all of sure. these things that we see in the culture today, you can see that all of that is being brought to bear upon the community of Christ's followers uh, because we ourselves are in, in the midst of purification, which mm. is meant uh, to bring us closer together, which is meant to rally us to the to the cross of Christ, to his sacred heart, and to, to make us stronger, uh, reliant upon the truth of our faith, mm -hmm. upon uh, principles of right worship and right belief, uh, upon the very things, the convictions um, of fidelity that the Maccabees were fighting for. I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned the, the, the current divisions. There's divisions in the church. Yeah. I'd like to stay there just for a little bit. When you talk about that, Go a little bit deeper. What kinds of divisions do you think are, are problematic, are injurious, yeah. that open us up to losing our way, our narrative? Right. So you said that even when I was little and when I was young, uh, there would have been much more of an ambient Christian culture. Mm -hmm. We've seen the end of Christendom now. And so we have another kind of religion, uh, a secular progressivist religion, which is uh, very much opposed to the principles of Christianity, right. uh, and um, there's there's been an effort to syncretize or to um, to accommodate uh, in a way which goes beyond uh, what I think we're able to do. Uh, some of these cultural currents, and so you've got things like um, abortion and gender ideology mm -hmm. and those kinds of things, uh, which come against us. I think that there are um, that there are a lot of Christians and Catholics who want to capitulate, who want simply to give in mm -hmm. uh, in an in an unscrupulous way uh, to some of these cultural movements, such that the church is no longer um, seasoning and, and forming and shaping the world, but we're allowing the world to shape and to season and to inform the church. Yeah. Uh, and then when that happens, the gospel loses its, 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 its vitality, its conquering strength, and, uh, and we lose the kind of courage that we need as well. And so we're seeing that uh, 
come against us as believers, and we have to think about how we can resist and how we can fight. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting thing because when you look, again, here I'm looking to be corrected, Jeff, if I'm misinterpreting the scriptures, because, uh, you know, when I look at um, at the the way that Judas Maccabeus and his brothers took up arms, uh, the guerrilla warfare, uh, you know, there might be some justification for you Think of the Cristeros War, for instance, at the beginning of the 20th century in Mexico, mm-hmm. when the persecutions were so uh, bitter. But, but I think that um, in the, under the dispensation of Christ, in the New Covenant, the weapons that were given, and St. Paul spells these out, are different from the weapons of the... Well, Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword. Sure. And so I'm thinking more about Eleazar, you know, uh, the, the elderly man who's told uh, in... Is it the sixth chapter of Second Maccabees that he should just eat pork and... And even if he doesn't want to, because they've been long friends with him, just pretend to eat it, and then they'll spare his yeah. life. And, I was and hoping he, you had mentioned Right, that. And, and he says, no, I can't. I don't want to even give scandal. I don't want people to say, here's this man in his 90s who's, um, who's uh, obeyed the law all of these years, and then in the end he capitulates. Uh, I would much rather die. And then in the next chapter we have... Uh, this mother and her seven sons, and the heroism with which each one of them, uh, in his own way, each of the seven sons, one after another after another, simply refuses and speaks words of bracing truth to Antiochus Mm -hmm. uh, just before they're put to death with great torture. And the whole time, uh, their mother, like like the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross, the whole time um, he... They're, they're encouraged and cheered on by their mother who says, I want to get you back. I want to receive. I don't know how you ended up in my womb. It's by God's grace. And I gave birth to you. And now you go and I can have you back in the resurrection. And so her faith is so amazing. I think that in, in our mm-hmm. time, we see, um, we see the, the, the weapons of the new covenant, the weapons of, of discipleship in Christ, uh, manifesting themselves in Eleazar, in that mother, in her seven sons, mm-hmm. and then, of course, in the in the um, in the martyrs of the apostolic age. Jeff, we're in a new apostolic age today, uh, and so the strategies that we used in a Christendom time are no longer going to be effective. This is the moment for us mm-hmm. uh, to take up the weapons which have been given to us. But I think the, the challenges are quite stern. I'm not gloomy about it. I don't want no, you to get good. me wrong. I, I'm not gloomy about it. Because some people are. <laughs> well, we should talk about that. Yeah. I, I, I think that, that a, lot, a lot of people get gloomy and also angry uh, because they have um, a, a vision of the church and the nature of the church, which is malformed by the modern mindset of utopias uh, and and the denial of the fall of human nature. They don't understand that the church is actually set up by Christ to be a great arena in which uh, impurity and um, uh, infidelity and uh, bad teaching and bad practice, in, in which in which great epic battles, like the battles of the Maccabees, can take place in every single generation, mm-hmm. and in which the church within her bloodstream can produce, because of that great struggle, because of the sickness, yeah. it can produce the immunity. And then that's, of course, the elixir of salvation. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the immunity that it, within the blood of the church, which we're all 
which we're all longing for. And each of us is, well, the saints are the antibodies right. flowing yeah. through the bloodstream <laughs> of the church. And so I think that people misunderstand the nature of the church, the struggle that we're meant to have within the church, the struggle that the church has with the world, and the way that informs our call to holiness and sanctity today. I think mm -hmm. that there's a lot. I'd like of, to stay there for yeah. a moment because that's such a that's such a good point. We have this utopian idea huh. that well, our culture, because we're here, should be just a, a bowl of cherries. Life is really good. Yeah. Uh, three out of your Five kids are going to be priests, you know, and 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 on and on, yeah. and it just isn't that way. And so when we see problems in the church, we oftentimes want to blame, and we point the finger yeah. at, at at everyone else. But but perhaps we as individuals have some liability here, in in where we are in where we are at, biblically. The, the story of salvation history is that God uses your enemies to deal with you. Yeah. And when your, your enemies are dealing with you, that's the time to look at yourself, not run around and blame everybody, everybody else. And so this time of, <laughs> of purification is for us. But yeah. many of us are not opening our eyes and realizing it. We're looking at it as us versus them when the battle might be right next to you with yeah. someone else. So a wise teacher, and this is just a cliche, you know, told me that when you're pointing the finger at somebody else, you're pointing three of your fingers back at yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that's a more accurate picture of reality. I think that, that a lot of the... And I, I, Again, I don't want to be gloomy about this at all because I think that there's a tremendous opportunity for heroism, for holiness, and all of this. But I think that um, that one of the things that occurs to me in the midst of the fights which which we face in our time, Jeff, is that um, is that the secular progressivist, this new religion, it comes after us because it's not convinced that we're for real. It's not convinced that, that we really, truly believe what we say we believe. And that's why it's so easy to write us off as, as, as bigots who are, uh, who are patriarchal and who are set upon various categories of discrimination yeah. to which we've given our ignorant, dark hearts. It's easy to write us off uh, in that way uh, because, uh, because it's hard for the world, uh, faithless as it is, to believe that there might be such a thing as fierce allegiance to the invisible world, mm -hmm. uh, a, a hope that goes beyond death and goes beyond the grave and that animates us with a genuine charity uh, that, that we're making a return to the Lord for all the good things that he's given to us with the gift of our lives. You know, the University of Mary has been for the last seven years, and we just, we just, it just finally came to a close. We've been in a lawsuit with the federal government. We had received a, a grant for rural healthcare nursing. Mm -hmm. And um, after we had received the grant, we were informed that there had been a rule change in the Department of Health and Human Services, and we were going to need to uh, provide gender transition and all of everything from speech therapy all the way down to, to gender transition surgery out of our self-funded uh, health insurance plan and that we would need to refer to those plans and for termination of pregnancy, for abortions, out of our student health clinic. And we said that we couldn't do it. We weren't trying to be heroes and, and we didn't mm -hmm. underestimate what it would be like to take on a powerful 
federal agency, and it resulted in us being in federal court for wow. seven years. But in the end, it wasn't, it wasn't because we didn't want to conform. It was because we couldn't. We actually couldn't. In other words, um, and, and I don't think that, that people think that, I don't think that the people who make such regulations believe that people exist who say, no, I actually can't do that. Because otherwise, um, if people like that did exist, it would be illogical to ask them. You mm -hmm. can't say, uh, in, order, in order to do what you think your conscience is calling you to do, to, to, in, to engage in education, we believe that God's called us to that. Yeah. In order to, to follow what God is calling you to do, you have to um, do what you believe God has commanded you not to do. Well, that's a, that's a situation in which there's not, you can only lose heart, you know, and so you, you can't command, in order to follow your conscience, uh, to, to follow God's call to educate students, you have to violate your conscience. They, they just don't believe that, that, that we're for real. Sure. And we haven't given them enough reason to believe that mm -hmm. we're for real. In other words, our witness hasn't been convincing enough such that, that, that they'll say, hey, look, you're just philanthropists. You're people who do good things, you know, healthcare and education and care for the poor and social services and adoption. Um, you, you Catholics are just philanthropists. You're another good organization. You're, yeah, you do great things. And the government, we have a compelling interest in inclusive ideals regarding dignity and equality and uh, health and and um, and gender and all of these things. And so, mm -hmm. for you to conform to our categories of inclusive values over here, that's a small price for you to pay yeah. in order to do these good things which make you feel good about yourself. And, <laughs> and, and, and of course, they're fundamentally misunderstanding us. We're not, and Mother Teresa always used to say this, her sisters and all of us, we're not philanthropists. At the University of Mary, we're not doing education because we think it's a noble thing to do to build up society and, and equip students for great careers and for a bright future. Of course, that's, in, in, a, in a worldly way, what we're doing, but more deeply than that, we believe that we're serving God. Um, and that in that mm -hmm. service, to, and so where do we get our identity? Not from philanthropy, not from love for fellow human beings and all. We, we get our, our call because we hear the voice, who, who will go for me? Whom shall I send? And we respond to the Lord, I'll go, send me. That's the response. And so I think that if, if, um, if we didn't allow such a, a wide fissure in which the enemy can move in and manipulate and take advantage of the divisions that we have among us, and if we gave a more uh, a vibrant and convincing witness of what it means to live for God, uh, then people would believe that we exist. That, and so, Jeff, I don't, I don't no, want to beat this, but, but, but they can't. It, it, it can't be. This is a weird, strange religion that 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 comes against us that nobody can believe. It's illogical to say the little sisters of the poor cannot care for the dying unless they pay for my birth control. The religious sisters of mercy in the University of Mary cannot cannot do ministries of education and healthcare unless they pay for my gender transition surgery. Nobody would believe that kind of thing. Yeah. And so it must be that they don't think that we really believe what we say we believe. That's what I want, I want to stay there for a yeah. moment because, you know, in my observations over the last few years, 
has been very similar in that if you take our witness in the public square, we are not a threat to anybody. You know, in terms of uh, what we're saying, yeah. I mean, co collectively, we maybe look like a, an easy pushover and that we can stay in our ghetto, yeah. do our thing, but conform to the bigger, to the bigger picture. It's um, almost like Antiochus Epiphanes is back yeah. and he's right in your backyard right. and you are in Modine. Yeah. Well, so it doesn't help that there are any number of, of Catholic legislators, both at the state and the federal level, who are willing to go on the record in support of legalized abortion, for instance. Mm -hmm. That's one example. But when you've got that, it's easy to marginalize those those of us who would stand for the cause of life and uh, and have have compassion in our hearts such that we want to give voice to the voiceless and stand up for the unborn child, it's easy for us to be marginalized as, as like wackos. You know what I mean? Those are the extreme, mm. those are the fringes of Christianity. Those aren't really uh, the, the, the people who stand for uh, 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 the, the sort of heart, the beating heart of the Christian faith. Um, and so it is, it is easy for us to get pushed into a ghetto. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it, what's so amazing is you can go back to the Maccabees, their convictions were there for everybody to see. And at a certain point, you don't see this in First Maccabees as much. In First Maccabees, there's, there's, there's all, of the, all of the evidence of victory. But in Second Maccabees, at a certain point, horsemen appear from the sky and you realize Oh my goodness, God's fighting for them. You know what I mean? And that makes all the difference. One of my favorite, you know, when I'm, when I'm having a hard time, and I do, <laughs> in other words, uh, uh, sort of sustaining and, and, uh, and leading um, a vital Catholic institution in the times in which we live, it's like building a house in a gale wind. Mm -hmm. it's, sometimes it's very, very difficult. It's beautiful work. It's exciting work. And I love, 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 love uh, that God's given me the yeah. chance to do this work and to serve young people on the doorstep of their lives. But sometimes, Jeff, it's very difficult. And in those moments, I remember... Do you remember in the 14th chapter of Exodus uh, when they come to the edge of the Red Sea and the Israelites, are, they say to Moses, what have you done? He, Pharaoh and his armies are right behind us mm -hmm. and we're going to be slaughtered here on the shore of the sea. This is some fine plan. And Moses says, um, says to them, these, these Egyptians whom you see here, you'll never see them again. God is fighting for you. God will fight for you. You need just st stay still. Mm -hmm. And and so there, there is a kind of fierce allegiance to the invisible world. There's the faith that Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, the sons of Mattathias, they had that kind of faith. That's the faith that we're called to today. Um, and, and even more in the new dispensation under Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has all kinds of surprises up his sleeve. And so at a certain point, when you, when you think everything's over, it's all over, that's when God is going to say, nope, I actually have a whole plan yeah. for the renewal of everything. You, you, I'm fighting for you. Yeah. You need to keep still, which, which is another way of saying, you need to just be faithful. Yeah. Well, you, you know, the, it was the Maccabeus family, Ed Modine. They're the ones that led this, this uh, <laughs> you know, this revolt, yeah. uh, so to speak. It wasn't, it wasn't everyone. For those that are watching right now that feel like, Monsignor, I hear you. 
uh, I'm I'm at this parish out in the you know in the boondocks or wherever, and I just I'm I'm really struggling with hope and where's this going to go? And you know I've got seven kids and four of them have left the church. I'm really worried about my grandkids. What's your word of hope to somebody like that who is saying, I'd like to live in Modine and be a part of that? You know myself. What what is the hope that? that we have and what, what should we be paying attention to in our own lives at a time like this? Yeah, well, I want to say first, I want to just say first that, that what extinguishes hope is uh, anger and fear. Mm-hmm. Remember uh, what Jesus says 15 times or more in the Gospels, not to be afraid. And this was the, the, the watchword of John Paul II, yeah. wasn't mm-hmm. it? And because he knew that the 20th century wouldn't be remembered simply as a century of tremendous violence and bloodshed, mm-hmm. but as a time of fear. And so when we allow fear and anger to feed upon each other, we're simply allowing the enemy to get into our head. We're allowing Antiochus Epiphanes uh, to consume our minds such that then it's very hard for us to have faith or to have hope or to have love. In other words, the the theological virtues, which are gifts from God, Mm -hmm. in other words, you can't gin them up. You have to receive them. You can prepare the soil of your heart for them, (laughs) but but you have to receive them from God. That they flee in the face of, of, of fear and in the face of anger. Um, and so the, the, the invitation to communion with God and with fidelity and to understand that, that the sufferings of our life, the sufferings no, better than the sufferings of our life, better to say the sufferings of our time. Yeah. In other words, the particular kind of loneliness, isolation, uh, bitter disappointment uh, that comes from living in a time of infidelity, that is the purification of God. Um, and if you look, it, it, Judith, I think, uh, reminds us of this, that, that God chastises those whom he loves. Yes. Uh, and so we shouldn't shirk um, or simply run away from the punishments of the Almighty because his his hand, if it wounds, it always heals. In other words, he, he doesn't intend uh, for us to, to turn into a pile of ashes. We're precious mm-hmm. to him. Every hair on our head is counted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we shouldn't be afraid. And so uh, I think that, um, that, that if a person is struggling with hope, and I struggle sometimes with hope, it's a matter of, of getting the narrative right in our mind. And, and, and regrounding our imaginations in the truth of the way that God moves through a fallen world full of heartbreak and infidelity and brings new life in the midst of it. Mm. He's always doing that. Yeah. And Jesus, if you... Um, I, I, I'm so shy about this, Jeff, because I, the last thing that I feel qualified to do is is to talk to you as a as a great Bible scholar and evangelist in our time about, um, about how to interpret the scriptures. But the life of Christ, when, when I look at the Lord, he's 100% successful 
in his preaching, effective, let's not say successful, 100% effective in his preaching, mm -hmm. even though lots of people don't receive the gospel. Why? Because he's testing hearts. In other words, mm -hmm. he, is, he is entirely effective all the time in testing the hearts of those to whom he's speaking. Right. Who's ready to receive the, the astonishing good news the truth that I've that I've that I've come to bring, the Lord is still moving through the world today. So everyone out in my dark moments, and everybody out there who's listening, uh, who's struggling with hope, um, the Lord is moving through your life. He's visiting you. He's in the room with you now, mm -hmm. and He's testing your heart. Are you ready to receive? What I'm coming to give, yeah. which is my mercy, my love, my purifying grace, uh, which will come into your life and will set everything right, uh, which will lighten every darkness, which will recast every dark story and make it redeemed. Right. Uh, he, he has the power to do that. Nobody else does. That's beautiful. It's you're you're speaking into the situation of the Maccabean period yeah. so so well, and it's and it's really it's really a challenge because one of the problems that we have is that I am really good at seeing specks in your eyes, yeah. you know, a sliver in your eye when I have a great big two by four in my own eye. I sure. don't know why, it's just a gift from God. I'm able to see slivers, you know, so so easily. And 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 that's that just perpetuates the problem that we're in is that we, we don't see correctly uh, our own lives and 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 what's going on in our own life. And it it really requires us to look in the mirror ourselves. Sure. You know, when we're we're so willing to point around that it's that leader's fault that leader's fault. And we fall into the problem in 1 Corinthians that, well, I'm of this guy. I follow that guy. Uh, I'm, I'm over on this party over here. Yeah. And uh, Paul says, no, 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 no. This, that's not the way we, we think. This is Jesus. You know, it's his kingdom. And do you have any suggestions on people who are in that period? And they, sure. they're so good at the sliver thing, because I am. And I don't notice that there's a great big two by four in my own eye. Yeah, I think not to spiritualize, but maybe to psychologize that just a little bit. I think it's because we hate our own poverty. In other words, um, Jesus loves the poor and he loves the poverty in us uh, and wants to fill it with his richness. And we hate that. We hate the, the ways in which uh, we're insufficient or don't measure up. Mm -hmm. uh, and that... Um, that grief at our own limitations uh, is then uh, cast upon others, and it 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 allows us because um, because we're so impatient with our own poverty, we can't stand the poverty in others or the poverty in the church, uh, and this makes us eager to divert our. Um, the, the energies of our mind away from uh, the, the pain, the, the sort of crippling humiliation and embarrassment of our own limitations. And, and so we go after others because it gives us some sense of relief. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then we become supercritical uh, because it makes us, it doesn't make us feel better, it makes us feel less miserable uh, to, to point out the misery that's out there in the church or in other people. 
Contrast that to the Maccabees. Look at the way in which they considered uh, their uh, insufficiencies in munitions. Uh, they were useless. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the Seleucids had, um, had the, the, the inheritance of, they had elephants. They came against, they came against Jerusalem yeah. with elephants. Ah, but we got donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. They, they had, they had the, the whole inheritance of the armies of Alexander the Great, uh, before whom the world yeah. fell silent. Here was a man who, when his armies were weary in India, sat down by the banks of the river, and they wouldn't go any further, and he wept because he couldn't conquer the rest of the world. He wept. At, at that point, he was just a young man, right, 26, 33. Mm -hmm. and, and so, um, so they had all of, the, all of the arms, they had all of the men, armies of tens of thousands, whereas uh, Judas Maccabeus was, was commanding much, much puny little armies, and yet God was fighting with him. Yeah. And so his poverty actually, and you see this, of course, in, in other places too, David right? David and Goliath. Right, you see, right, this is right. You see it in, in David and Goliath. Um, you, you see it uh, all... Gideon. Gideon, mm -hmm. that's right. You see it all through uh, the, the, the way in which, right, Gideon with, with the tests and so too many, too yeah. many for your army. Yeah, yeah. The, the way that, that, that those who were zealous for the law in the Maccabean revolt embraced their poverty was deeply impressive because it meant that they were seeing the world rightly and they were understanding that there's a visible world and an invisible world, and that God is not anxious. God is not hopeless. Mm -hmm. God has it all in hand. He hasn't lost control. Uh, and for us to think that is, is an overwhelming pride, which will always rob our joy. Uh, and so the, the Maccabees understood and embraced their poverty. What's and, our poverty? And what's our poverty and how do we embrace it? Right. So, so our poverty, so in a worldly sense, uh, the church has lost its footing. And so we're facing a, a period of stern uh, opposition in which uh, things might get much worse mm -hmm. from a worldly perspective before they get better. Uh, and so that's, that's a, a certain kind of poverty. And then uh, I think that there's a poverty as well, uh, which comes from a, a generation of Catholics, which through ignorance of the scriptures and ignorance of the, uh, of the catechism, which you and the people at Ascension Press uh, and Ascension are, are trying and, and doing such beautiful work to overcome scriptural literacy, catechetical, catechetical literacy, uh, that there's a generation that doesn't know how to believe, what to believe, how to pray, how to worship, uh, and so uh, we've we've lost our way as a, as a people. We don't have um, we we we've squandered our inheritance, uh, and we've traded in it for a lump of coal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, and and so that's a poverty. Uh, and so f for us to say none of that matters. What the world thinks of us, they can think that we're the best impressive people or they can think that we're the we're just dumb luddites that doesn't matter to us uh worldly influence doesn't matter to us uh f great 
um, uh, buildings, the, the massive physical plants uh, don't matter to us as much. What matters to us is fidelity, mm. the love of God, and a world which is desperate to know God and to know His love. It, we want to be witnesses to that in the darkness. These are great times because uh, Christianity is a, is, is a religion for a suffering, fallen race. And when things are going along the way that we think that they're supposed to, when there's enough you know, comfort and food and warmth and in the winter and, and air conditioning in the summer, uh, when, when our life is arranged the way that we want, and when there's a kind of prosperity, that can obscure the fact that we're a race the human race is under a curse. We're desperately in need of salvation every minute of history, every breath we take. Right. Uh, and, and so this is a tremendous time because in dark times, when it's not comfortable, uh, when, when we're faced with great challenges, this is the time in which we're meant to shine like the stars of heaven. And so this is, this is the time for saints. And so, the Holy Spirit has... Oh, I like that. Yeah, the Holy Spirit has something up no, that's, that's that's really good. We have to wind this part up. I wish we could talk for hours about yeah. it. And I, I, I love your insights into this. You couldn't have done this better. You used to share the truth of today in the context of Maccabees, but bringing it all full circle here. You've got, you've got a minute to talk to someone in an elevator that says, Monsignor, I'm really scared today of what's going on. I feel like I'm losing my faith. What would be the message to them if you could just give them one message? God loves you more than you can imagine. Uh, and if you tap into that love, it's an adventure which makes you so resilient, so... Um, uh, impenetrable in terms of all of the anxieties and fears that you are currently experiencing. It's the way to go. Not only that, if you're afraid for those you love, God loves them more than you do. Mm -hmm. And so communion with Him is the pearl of great price, and 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 that's that's what you're looking for. Wow. Um, and you were a dairy farmer. I yes 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 I was. A lot of wisdom in dairy wow. farmers. There sure is. There sure is. There sure is. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we do want to get a little bit more into the life of Monsignor Shea, how he deals with scripture, and we're going to take your questions. We'll be right back. CMF Curo is a Catholic health and wellness alternative for individuals and families that offers what modern healthcare is missing. Curo offers an affordable and faithful Catholic alternative to the impersonal experience so many people confront when they need health care. Curo is fueled by the belief that each person is an unrepeatable gift from God. This belief informs its whole-person holistic approach to its health and wellness program. Curo provides personalized wellness coaching, spiritual direction, small group studies, Catholic community, and a Christ-centered healthcare sharing option. As you consider your healthcare needs this year, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining and learning more at cmfcuro.org. That's cmfcuro.org. Welcome back to the Bible Timeline Show. We're talking with Monsignor Shea. He's the president of University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. Tell me about your life with the Bible. You yeah. know, you, here you are. You're the president of a, a university, University of Mary, and you've got a lot of responsibility in your life, not just for the, you know, the, the, uh, the running of a university, but the formation of these students. And it all, it all really 
starts with you. You know, yeah. as far as you're the leader, the buck stops there. Right. So what's your relationship with Scripture? So um, to answer that question, I have to just say a word of thanks to God for, um, for a profound grace that came into my life when I was a little, little kid. So I grew up in the, in the middle of nowhere. You know, mm -hmm. I grew up in rural, rural North Dakota. Um, and uh, my parents uh, were simple but good people. Uh, my dad was a reader, and so our house was full of books. Mm -hmm. And he came from a family of, of self-educated people. But I came across, um, when I just had started to read, uh, a series of little magazines that the Mary Nall sisters, these were missionary sisters founded here in the United States, that the Mary Nall sisters had put out probably in the 1950s called Crusade Magazine. And it was a, it was a series, and it was the Bible for children. But it was, a, it was not like your picture Bible for children. It was heavy, uh, impressive, uh, artfully done, phenomenal storytelling. So my young mind and heart got swept away by uh, the story of God's intervention in the world when I, from the very beginning, and that was an act of grace. I remember I told you before that my mom was a convert to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was little once, I went out uh, and uh, went to Bible study with my Lutheran cousins at this little white church that they all went to, and they had Bible trivia as part of this Bible study. And I sat there, the Catholic kid, and of course, uh, the, the word on the street was that Catholics yeah. didn't know anything about the Bible, and yep. so they thought, isn't this going to be amazing for little Jimmy Shea? Uh, and, and I know all the answers. And they were amazed. They were like, how did you know all the answers? And you're Catholic. Right, right, and you're Catholic. And so from the time that I was really little, I, uh, I got swept away by that. And then when I was in college, um, you know, I went to Jamestown College, which is a Presbyterian school. Uh -huh. And I had a couple of teachers who just were, they were both Presbyterian ministers, but deeply enmeshed in the Word and who really opened my eyes more deeply and helped me to, to appreciate the scriptures uh, um, and, it, and it introduced me as well to the writings of C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton. Around that time, I started to listen to Rich Mullins, uh, who was a great sure. poet. Rag you know. Muffin Band. Right. He, he had a, a profound, his, his, um, his work, is, his songs are just drenched in, in scripture. He had a, a deep influence on my life in terms of the romance of faith and, and the love of the word. Uh, he really helped me a lot. And then, um, you know, as a priest, um, to, to preach the word and to read it in the, in the, in the breviary has mm -hmm. been very deeply moving to me. But I think I've had the grace two times. Once, right before I became president of the University of Mary, uh, I was released 15 days early from my um, diocesan assignment and 15 days uh, of the first 15 days of my assignment at the University of Mary, I did a 30-day silent retreat. Um, and, you know, these are the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius mm -hmm. of Loyola, in which you take the, the whole of the scriptures, and especially the life of Christ, and you pray through it imaginatively, and it just comes alive in a, in a really significant way. And then, 10 years later, on my 10th anniversary as president of the University of Mary, I've been there 14 years, so four years ago, the Board of Trustees of the University sent me on another 30-day silent retreat 
in Jerusalem this time. Oh, wow. And so I've spent 60 days sort of drenched in silence and in the scriptures, the second time in Jerusalem. Just walking so, the streets. Right. So I would go up uh, uh, when, when, we were, when I was meditating, for instance, on the, on the finding of the child Jesus in the temple, I'd go to Temple Mount mm -hmm. and pray there. Um, or I'd, I'd wander over and pray at the tomb of, of, of the Lord at, at the Holy Sepulchre sure. uh, or on Calvary. And so uh, that, that has a lasting effect. And so now in being in, Jeru in, 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 in you know, they, they talk about, I don't know if you buy into this cliche, but they talk about uh, the Holy Land is the fifth gospel. I do. You know, I teach it. I okay. love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and so the 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 way that 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 animates uh, the mind mm -hmm. uh, when you open up and you hear the Lord preaching by the Sea of Galilee, and you can you can you can hear the water, you can feel the breeze, you can yeah. uh, enter into it. Um, you know, I just believe so deeply in it, and I. This is a great grace in my life. There's never been a time uh, when I've I've struggled to to believe the Word of God. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I spend time uh, with my Bible, um, both in terms of getting ready for preaching, but I try and not simply make it just pragmatic. You know what I mean? There's a transactional element there in which, okay, I've got to give a sermon, and so what what can I glean from this? What will preach? This is what Father Mike Schmidt says sometimes. That'll preach. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's not just simply that, uh, but also... Um, that habit of prayer and searching the scriptures from these uh, deep experiences of prayer on, on the spiritual exercises of St. Mm -hmm. Ignatius has given me the habit of mind to be able uh, to, be at, um, to enter into it. I think, for instance, of uh, when, when I heard we were going to talk about the, the Maccabees, it was an occasion for me to, to open those books again mm -hmm. and blow off some dust, and, and be, be brought back into the adventure of it all. Yeah. I wanted to ask you one last yeah. one. One verse. Do you have a life verse, or do you have a verse you're kind of always going back to as an anchor? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the one that I mentioned before from the 14th chapter of Exodus um, uh, is one. But I think um, there are two from the Psalms, Psalm 116. From the time that I became a priest, um, I've been haunted by these words, how can I make a return to the Lord for, the, for all the good he's given me? Hmm. Uh, I will lift up the chalice of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Um, and then uh, 126, Psalm 126, um, those who sow in tears will reap rejoicing. As a farm kid who grew up tilling the land yeah. and milking cows, they go out, they go out full of tears carrying seed for the sowing, they come back, they come back full of song, uh, carrying their sheaves, mm -hmm. uh, the bounty of the harvest. Um, I'm a farmer all my life in that respect. And so um, the, the idea of what we were just talking about, that there should be a lot of tears in the sowing, uh, I trust uh, that there will be, um, that there will be uh, much joy in the harvest. So I think Exodus 14, um, uh, Psalm 116, Psalm 126. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah. Well, we do have some questions, and we want to. Yeah. It's always fun to ask questions uh, to the president of a university. Okay. Because that's where I just stand. I just sit back and relax. <laughs> okay. All well. right. So we have a first question from Laura. 
Laura says, I'm confused. Are the Maccabees a tribe? Who are they? So I want to ask you this question. You know, what I've heard, what I was taught is that uh, Maccabee was a epitaph of Judas himself, of the son of Mattathias, mm -hmm. that it meant the hammer. Mm -hmm. uh, it but did, the, yeah. Okay, I've heard though as well that there was a cry about Yahweh, um, uh, sort of a battle cry, which could be uh, morphed etymologically into Maccabee. And so I've, I've never known quite, but anyway, I, I think it's an epitaph, epitaph of, of Judas himself, which mm -hmm. then sort of uh, spread to his brothers. He had, there were five of them, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you think of the Maccabees, you don't typically think of Mattathias first, even right. though he's the father. It's right. Judah. Yeah. Judas, Judah Maccabees, Judah Maccabees, and, and today it's the beer. In Israel, I don't know if you had is it. it really? That it is. That's no, the, I that is the national beer. Is <laughs> Maccabeus beer? Oh my goodness! So I, I, I know I had one once, but <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, why didn't the Jews crown a king after the successful Maccabean revolt? They had to know the Davidic descendants. Was it due to the lack of a prophet? So, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that, but I am struck by the way in which this is, again, how the Maccabees weren't bothered by their poverty. Um, several times in these chronicles of the Maccabees, the evil or wicked world rulers, their hearts rise up. This is arrogance, this is pride. And you see, even though there was deep courage and high-heartedness among the Maccabees, you don't have pride. And so remember, when they were confronted by the, the temple, mm -hmm. which had been desecrated, and the altar upon which the abominable desolation uh, had taken place, the, the sacrifice of a swine, um, they tore it down, mm -hmm. uh, but they put the, the, the rocks to the side, uh, and they said, we, we don't know um, what to do with them, we'll wait for a prophet to come and tell us what to do. And then they rebuilt it with unhewn rocks according to the law. And so you see that there that there's a kind of shyness in the Maccabees around the questions of the law mm -hmm. um, in terms of wanting to, to do things in the proper way. Right. And so uh, I think perhaps to crown a king, you know, uh, think for instance of the selection of Jesse, uh, how I'm sorry, the selection of David, this, the sons of Jesse, God uh, sends Samuel one by one by one. No, nope, yeah. he's not here. We won't, we won't have the anointing uh, until, um, until the youngest son comes. Mm -hmm. And then when he anoints him, the Spirit of God rushes upon David. God chooses the king. Here's a good question from David. Can you explain why Protestants don't think the book, uh, books of Maccabees are scripture? Well, that's a good question. That's a, good, that's a real good question. Yeah, so my understanding of this, and again, I've been out of seminary for a few years, is um, that, uh, that, the, the, that Catholics take as our canon uh, 73 books, mm -hmm. uh, and that we use for the Old Testament the Septuagint, yeah. uh, which was um, a translation of the, of the Hebrew scriptures done in Alexandria, mm -hmm. uh, part of the Ptolemaic uh, kingdom. Yeah. Um, and that, that that was the canon which was adopted uh, by the early church yep. uh, and uh, for 1,500 years uh, was reverenced by um, 
Catholics is inspired, but that uh, the, the Jewish canon doesn't include uh, those books which are deuterocanonical. Mm -hmm. We call them, uh, I think they're called by some apocryphal. Uh, it doesn't include that. And at the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers adopted the Jewish canon yeah, instead yeah. of the Septuagint. And so it's not like Catholics um, added books or Protestants took yeah, books it's away. neither one of those. Yeah. Okay, we have uh, 2 Maccabees 15 talks about the seventh day. We believe the day of rest is Sunday, the seventh day. Why do some religions believe the Sabbath is on Saturday? And some do, of course, don't they? Monsignor, you have the Seventh Day Adventists and, yeah. and other groups that they, they believe still that uh, the Sabbath is on Saturday. Well, here I think we're talking about the first pages of, of the sacred scriptures, Genesis. So God creates the world in six days mm -hmm. and he rests on the seventh day. Yeah. And so then that becomes one of the, uh, one of the prescriptions of, of Jewish law. And indeed, it's, it's interesting, um, you know, if, if you think about the Ten Commandments, which are given to Moses, a lot of them are, are clear from natural law. Don't commit adultery and steal and lie. Mm -hmm. But there is this peculiar one about the Sabbath, keeping holy the Sabbath, as though God is saying to those people, the, the people of the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, whom he's just set free from slavery that they shouldn't live like slaves, <laughs> that they shouldn't allow their life to be consumed by that which is servile, uh, but that they should have time for worship, for family, all of those things. Uh, my understanding is that in the very earliest, earliest, at the dawn of Christianity, um, the, uh, the Sabbath um, and the holy day for the Christians was Sunday because it was the day of the resurrection, but wasn't understood to be either the first day or the seventh day, but the eighth day, yeah. uh, because it's it's the it's it's God rounding out His creation, mm -hmm. making it anew. So He creates the world in six days, rests on the seventh, and then of course we break things apart <laughs> by our disobedience, and then He remakes creation on the eighth day. Yeah. And so, for instance, if you go to Rome. Uh, and you see, you go to the Pope's Cathedral, which is St. John Lateran, the Archbasilica of St. John Lateran. The, the church itself uh, is not uh, the church which was built by Constantine the Great. Uh, it, it's on the site of it, but uh, it's now uh, this magnificent Borromini Romanesque, uh, not Borromini Baroque uh, masterpiece. But the baptistry is still uh, from the Constantinian era. Uh, and if you go back behind, it's tucked behind, it's eight-sided. The, 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 the baptistries, which were separate from the early Christian basilicas and churches, had eight sides to, to mark the eight days. And so I think that there, there are the Seventh-day Adventists and, and others, and still the Jews today, keep uh, the Sabbath on Saturday, which is the seventh day. But we keep it on the eighth day, which is also the first day, Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the resurrection changed absolutely, absolutely everything. It remade and, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it goes back to Genesis, as you, as you, Genesis, as you said, that Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day, the same day as the animals. Mm. So what's the distinction? Well, yeah, they were created on the sixth day, but they were made for the seventh day, which ah. is God's rest. Yeah. And it says in Hebrews that Israel never completely entered God's rest. Mm. And it was Jesus who is the one who made that possible for us to enter into that 
that rest. Yeah. This has been so good. I, I appreciate you joining us so much. Oh, it's and, an honor. It's an honor for me. Yeah, just to, we could go on all day just talking about the beautiful things in the kingdom of God, but you have laid out so well uh, the Maccabean revolt and modern society today, what we're facing. Don't be afraid, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, uh, give your life completely over to Christ and he is the one that we need to focus on for sure during the times that we're going through right now. Well, let me let me just say how grateful I am to be here and how much I admire uh, the work that you and Ascension and everybody uh, who's working with you do to advance the kingdom and to help people to fall more deeply in love with the Word of God. I really admire it but and applaud it. Thank you. We got a great team. We really do. God bless you. Would you mind closing up in prayer for us? Absolutely. Father, in your great goodness, uh, you've placed us in a particular time in history, not by accident. None of us are an accident. Instead, you've prepared us for this moment, and you've placed us in the world at this time such that we might use all the gifts you've given us and be conduits of grace in magnificent and beautiful ways. Make us holy then. Purify and cleanse us of all fear and anger so that instead we might be bright witnesses to you in a world which is so weary, so convulsed uh, by division, by infidelity, and by uh, violence. Instead, make us bright, shining lights of redemption and peace, witnessing to your power to move in human hearts and minds for the redemption of our own personal souls, the redemption of all those whom we love in the redemption of the whole world. Mary, our mother, uh, in your great tenderness, draw near to us and pray for us, uh, such that in everything uh, we might give praise and honor to your Son and to his Father who created us. We ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for watching. If you would like to see more amazing content on the Bible, be sure to like and subscribe.